him to tie my shoelaces. One day, he promised me a quarter if I would learn to tie my own shoes. Now, a quarter was an unheard amount of money for me, and I really worked to earn that quarter. A quarter was an unheard of amount of money for me, and I really worked to earn that quarter. I sat on my little red hassock for hours, tied and untied my shoelaces. Soon it was easy, and I never again had to ask Dad to tie them for me. With these black shoes, we wore long black ribbed stockings. These stockings were very troublesome. They came in just above the knee and were held in place by a garter made from inch-wide elastic. However, they kept slipping down and I forever kept trying to pull them back up. Sometimes, on a spring Sunday, we would wear long, white, ribbed stockings to church. In the summertime, we wore black patent leather slippers that fastened with one strap. With these slippers, we wore white socks with different colored stripes around the tops. In summer, at home, we went barefoot most of the time, though we always had to put on shoes if we were going visiting, even to one of the nearby neighbors. Like most farm families, we spent very little for clothing. My sisters and I each had two or perhaps three gingham or calico dresses for school and one good dress for Sunday. We wore the Sunday dress for two or three years and then took it for school wear. When I was young, all clothing for my sisters and for me was handmade and all of my dresses were made in the same style. They had full skirts, long sleeves, and waists that bloused. Sometimes the skirt and waist were separated by a set-in belt, while at other times the skirt was gathered directly onto the waist. All of these had buttons in the back that came to just below the waist. I was nine before I had a store-bought dress, and I remember it well. It was made in the usual style in a blue-red-green pattern of very small checks and had two pockets on the front of the skirt. I was proud of my ready-made dress. Boys wore dresses, too, until they were about two years old, and I remember one special dress my brother Brantley wore. Aunt Kate had made it from fine, striped madras, white with tiny cream stripes. It opened all the way down the front, had a dainty round collar, and long sleeves that ended in tiny cuffs which fastened with a delicate pearl button. Fine handmade tatting decorated the collar and cuffs, and the belt hung loose, reaching almost to the hem of the dress. All of the adult women in the neighborhood wore long dresses that reached to the top of their shoes. For daily wear, they chose tiny checked gingham of brown, black, or blue, or printed calico in tiny designs. A few daring ladies sometimes had a house dress of red or green checks. For variety, the ladies some days wore shirtwaists and skirts. In the summer, these skirts were made of cotton, and in the winter they were made of black or navy serge. The shirtwaists sometimes matched the skirts but frequently the waists were made of white, fine, lawn, or cambric with long puffed sleeves and high necklines. Many were trimmed with yards and yards of French lace or were adorned down the front with small dainty tucks. 
a few of the older women had a special dress of black satin. Made in the usual shirtwaist style, it always had a full wide skirt. Both skirt and waist were solid black and trimmed in black lace or in tiny rows of black velvet. This dress would be worn only on special Sundays or to area weddings or funerals. For work, the men wore a sort of overall made of heavy blue material, much like denim, and with it, they wore a blue chambray shirt. For Sunday, almost all of the dress shirts were white, and as strange as it seems, they had no collars. Dad kept his collars in a bureau drawer and put on a clean collar each Sunday. When the collars became soiled, Dad made a bundle of them, and on our next trip to Parksley, he took them to an old Chinaman who ran a small laundry. When we picked up the collars on our next trip to Parksley, they always looked brand new. Like most Nelsonian men, Dad had two wool suits, one for Sunday and another for visiting. He bought all of his clothes at Mr. Johnson's store in Parksley. It was at this store that Dad always brought shoes and coats for the whole family. Several times each year, Dad would hitch old Bill to the buggy, we would all pile in, and away we would go down the road to Parksley. This was a grand trip, and every member of the family enjoyed it. When we arrived, we tied old Bill to a small tree in front of the store and entered through the double front door. Mr. Johnson's store was very large. The section on the left as we entered the store was given to the display of men's clothing. Hanging on racks were brown-checked, solid brown, navy, and dark gray suits. All were made of fine wool and all had vests. A second rack held men's overcoats and dusters in a wide variety of lengths in both single and double-breasted styles. All of the men, and some of the women, wore dusters when they went driving to keep the dust kicked up by the horse's feet from soiling their good clothes. Mr. Johnson always had these available in shades of ecru and beige. Further down on the same side of the store were stacks and stacks of shoes. There were shoes for every member of the family, from grandmother to baby. It was here that Dad bought all of our shoes, and he always selected a Buster Brown shoe. If your new pair of shoes had buttons, the salesman handed you a new button hook for your very own. And if they laced up, he just might, though not always, give you an extra pair of shoelaces. All of this was enough to monopolize a child's attention, but it could not compete with the other side of this store. On the right-hand side, as we entered the front door, were shelves that reached almost to the ceiling, and each shelf was filled with dried goods. Mr. Johnson carried far more yard goods than Norman. The display was enough to take your breath away. It was from this huge array that Mother chose the material for our Sunday dresses. In addition to the regular ginghams of red, blue, brown, and black, there were calicos in every color of the rainbow, covered with tiny printed designs. Poplins and percals, both plain and printed, lay next to lawn and eye-catching linens. Higher on the shelves were bolts of dark blue wool serge, dark blue wool flannel, and shepherd's plaid in both brown and white and black and white. 
One separate section held satins of shiny green, black, yellow, and rose, and sateens of many colors and patterns. Personally, the brightly colored chalice or the colorful Scottish tartan plaids always caught my eye. Here, I thought, was material enough to make a summer and a winter dress for everyone in the world. Near the back of the store were women's and children's clothes. I do not remember any dresses, though a few were probably offered. Most women made their own, and so they rarely bought ready-made dresses. A few dark wool suits hung near a rack of long coats in blue, black, and brown, some with plain collars and some trimmed in fur. One whole rack was full of petticoats. Most were of white cambric or good muslin, and both kinds were trimmed with insertion or edgings of wide lace. Near these petticoats were others of rustling taffeta in dark wine, dark green, navy, and black. There were also skirts and shirtwaists, including some elaborately trimmed in Hamburg lace. Right next to Mr. Johnson's store was a small shop that sold nothing but hats. It was an entrancing place to visit. The hats were displayed on tables scattered about the store and in large glass cases built into the walls. Only one table held hats that were trimmed, and these were always extremely elaborate. I still remember those magnificent hats. Many were trimmed with pink or red roses or with a large bunch of bright red cherries, while others had scarlet poppies or dainty violets or a daisy wreath. Small feathers were also popular, and all of the trimmed hats had lemons, ribbons, and laces galore. For summer, they offered a variety of hats in natural color straw, fine leghorns with drooping brims, roll-front straws, braided straws, and poke bonnets. There were wide brims and narrow brims, Milner's mull and fine chiffon, anything your heart desired. For winter, the hats came in the same general styles, but were in dark colors, black, brown, or blue, and all were of felt or velvet. A lady sat in the back of this shop and did nothing but trim hats all the time. She was wonderfully quick with her needle and thread, and she did not mind if I stayed near to watch her. Mother selected our hats, and we helped to select the trimmings from a whole showcase of tempting beauty. It was filled with all kinds of flowers, from soft rosebuds to bright morning glories. Here also were small feathers and several dozens reels of ribbon. As a rule, our hats had only a single band of ribbon around the crown, a big bow in back, and then long streamers that hung down in back. On one of these trips to Parksley, we stopped again at this hat shop, and this special lady had saved a small paper sack for me, full of bits of ribbon and scraps of velvet. These were for my doll, and though I have forgotten the lady's name, her kindness is with me still. Considering that this was a rural farming community, it seems the people dressed well. A few folks I know did go to the city, Baltimore or Philadelphia, once or twice a year to buy their clothes, but they were the exception instead of the rule. Country stores carried a wide variety of materials, and stores in the small towns stocked everything an eastern shore citizen could desire or afford.